You're listening to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor, trader, short seller, and deep dive researcher for the last two decades plus, and me, Daniel Schwartzman, who's worked in investing media the last decade while managing my own stocks. We break down investing themes or ideas and speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. Reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. You can subscribe to Akram's The Razor's Edge newsletter at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. The link is in Akram's Twitter profile. Here's our disclosure. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions and any stocks discussed in the introduction to a given episode. It's all happening. Elon Musk filed to terminate his deal to buy Twitter. Twitter sued him for specific performance. And now the trials begin. Not a trial actually today on Tuesday, but a hearing to see whether the trial should take place on Twitter's requested timeline in September or Musk's requested timeline in February. In any case, the two sides are starting to show their hands. While much of the negotiations have been done in public, the filings were still revelatory. So as we approach the end game of the end game, Akram and I talk about what we learned, what happens next, and who has a stronger hand. Though I don't think you'll be surprised by our conclusions if you've listened to us before. Notes before we begin, this was recorded Thursday, so we're one filing behind on each side, Musk requests to postpone to February, and Twitter's counter-filing that Musk is swallow-locking the deal. Akram is long Twitter, as am I. Nothing on the podcast is investment advice. Very briefly, a big belated thanks to Bring Back Value Investing, who has both a good Apple user handle and left us a nice four-star review about the podcast. Thanks for sharing. Okay, here we go. Akram, how's it going? Good, how you doing? Not too bad. Uh, not so many weeks that you get to read a lawsuit filed in the Delaware Court of Chancery that features paragraph 79, the famous poop emoji. It's part of the, part of the evidence, but we finally have it. We have... Elon Musk filing to terminate his deal to buy Twitter. Twitter quickly responding by suing him to specific perform, specifically perform his obligations. I guess is how you would phrase it yeah. to act, actually under the, under the merger agreement. Yeah, to to actually buy Twitter as as vowed. Is there anything? from the various documents this week that has stood out to you, surprised you, impressed you, anything as a starting point for you? Yeah, so, I mean, I think with the way this has played out and, like, you know, what got me interested in it, uh, once Twitter came down into the 30s as this circus, you know, unfolded uh, in May and June, um, was that we, this would be the first time 
but you'd we'd get some insight into what's going on behind the scenes and like actually anything from Twitter beyond, you know, boilerplate. Uh, we're trying to close the transaction and we're just moving on. Uh, we're moving ahead as scheduled, right? So like from the minute Elon opened this up, like Twitter's position has just been to, you know, continue <clears throat> dotting the I's and crossing the T's you know, outside of uh, two things, I think the Parag thread, which he responded with explaining uh, how they calculate uh, and how they deal with spam. And uh, Twitter's lawyer saying there's no such thing as putting the deal on pause, right? So those are like the only two things Twitter said. The rest has been Musk's narrative, right? And the media around it. If you're in the, if you're, I mean, I don't want to say Musk fanboy, but like the Musk fanboys are obviously in the camp of like, he's buying Twitter. He, like, he has every right to know that it's not a fraud, essentially speaking. Right. They're not even really saying that he has like, I mean, you buy a house, you have the right to know. You know, people have used this termite analogy lately. Uh, if I tell you it's 5%, uh, I didn't waive my right, you know, to make sure that that's the case. Um, by uh, by club but but by saying I waive my right to, you know, extend a due diligence, and then sign a merger agreement. Like my information access rights still cover me, you know. Like uh, part of the process of closing the transaction, you know, you could say is just being certain that the representations and warranties are accurate. What may like you know, that would be typically implied as something that you would have addressed in due diligence, but you've taken comfort in it. Uh, and in the in the interim of closing, you may you know if something was to happen, all right, uh, you definitely would use those information access rights. So like if there was let's say some material event, you know, and that's typically been something happens at the business, you know, a whistleblower comes forward. We've seen that in uh, uh this acorn and like tells the buyer, you know, there's, there's serious problems here. You should look into, then you contact the seller and you say, uh, we need to, we were going to use our information access rights to, you know, conduct our own independent assessment of certain things. Uh, so that's like one example of a legal case you know, where that went down. Uh, there's, a, you know, another one in Boston, Boston Scientific Channel Med Systems, where, you know, it was, it was discovered that like the, you know, head of quality control for their FDA submissions had been committing some sort of fraud, right? Company didn't know about it. They found out, uh, they disclosed it. And then like, you know, the buyer was like, well, this changes everything. And that also went to court, right? So those are like examples of uh, fact patterns. An actual where, new development that could. Yeah, a new development that causes you to uh, question uh, what has been represented to you. Here, you know, the Twitter MDA disclosure, and I'm not going to read it here, but like, you know, to, just to sum it up, just says we use significant judgment. Uh, to get at this 5% number and it could be higher, right? They essentially tell you 
we're not we're not sure. Like they, uh, we are hundred percent not sure here. This is not something that's set in stone. Uh, but this is what this is what we do, and we're trying to get better at it. And like, there's a long timeline of filing that same number over and over again, right? Below five percent. Now we know exactly how they do it, right? I think that's part. Like that was part of the interesting thing in the complaint. Uh, they do an independent verification of a hundred ramble, a hundred random accounts a day, which turns into nine thousand a quarter, right? So, and, and this this is you know they pick a hundred accounts at random each day, and there's like a group of people who go through the process of manually verifying uh, that there's real humans behind it, right? And whatever information private information Twitter has that allows them to do that. And that works out to 9,000 a quarter. And they've been doing this for years and they are constantly publishing that this is less than 5%. Elon actually came out clearly like, you know, they disclosed this to him because it's not disclosed that it's a hundred. Uh, he said it was just a hundred, right? He didn't say it was a hundred a day. So like they do have a good point there. One, he disclosed something that's not public uh which he's not supposed to do two he characterized it in an incomplete manner that is misleading right since it's a hundred a day nine thousand a quarter right just saying it's a hundred uh is actually materially false <laughs> and uh it's probably you know uh information that falls in the category of uh uh their exception with respect to information access rights that they they negotiated with him for a reasonable business purpose of closing the transaction. Uh, but this would fall into the category of information that they've provided to him, which they don't need to provide to him if they believe the deal is not going to close and could competitively harm Twitter. I would say, you know, telling advertisers and uh, uh, the investing public uh, that they only look at 100 random accounts a quarter, some people may actually view that as uh, on its face insufficient, right? At a, for, for a 220 million daily active users, you know? Not enough, not enough of it. Forget the fact that in fact, whatever your sample is, if you're doing it for years, and it, and if in fact your system is your system systematic approach uh, for picking the random accounts is in fact totally randomized, right? It shouldn't matter, right? Because the sample size over time, right, should work out. So like you 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 would have some sort of like if it was just a hundred, and it was consistently just being five or less every quarter uh that would still be reliable data right as long as you can as long as you can show that it's 100 at random right that's the important thing i think there but but in this case it's not 100 it's 100 a day it's 9000 a quarter and they've been doing this for years so i'd say that's pretty good uh, 
as as long as you know i mean i guess we could sit here and question what like what is random uh as long as that's not corrupted because like you know there's bad 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 data in uh it's going to consistently produce bad data out right one bad assumption just like the assumptions by the way around what are fake accounts versus using that comparing the 5% MDU error rate, which, which Elon has cited, he cited that spark Toro or whatever, which started with a chart and it put like, you know, 25%, uh, 20%, like it had a couple different estimates of stuff that they'd fold from uh, public Active accounts they account, track. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And then just said, and then it had the MDU number at 5% and was comparing them, even though the MDU number has nothing to do with the public accounts that they're working off of because Twitter's already removing uh, fake accounts and a whole bunch of other things uh, by the time they get to From an that MDAU denominator. Yeah. Yeah. So there's clearly an MDAU sample set. And whatever that sample set is, they pull 100 a day out of it and conduct a test, you know, verification, manual verification. So, yeah, I do think that, I mean, a complaint is going to paint one one party side of a picture, right? But, like, I mean, we did get his notice of termination. So, like, you do have two two sides here that you can work off of. And, I mean, I don't know if you've been reading my writing on this stuff, but, like, not to toot your own horn, but you do like to sometimes. Uh, <laughs> it's been pretty, it's, it's like, I mean, there's there's language in that complaint that's, like, verbatim type of language I've used, whether it's the pretext, torpedo, the approach with information access rights, that they would hammer away at this. So, yeah, I mean, I was kind of excited to see Twitter's response once we got to termination because you knew it was going to be blistering, right? Because we've now spent so much time looking at the case law and, you know, you know, I feel like I'm a lawyer. <laughs> it's finally, finally putting that degree to good use. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, you know, everybody now, you know, a lot of people like to joke, you know, it's like, you know, uh, Fintwit, uh, merger arb and Fintwit, you know, merger law experts. But I mean, the law is about precedent. And if you, you know, take enough time to read all the relevant cases, and then you take an existing fact pattern and you try to fit it into it, that's what the judges are doing, right? So, but, so a couple of thoughts I had from the actual Twitter complaint, because the Musk, the Musk filing to terminate, there wasn't, it was two pages. It was pretty, he came up with a new out of, what is it? Course of ordinary conduct or whatever the course ordinary, ordinary course. Ordinary course of business. Yeah. I'm looking at it now in the Twitter complaint. Well, his complaint essentially rests on uh, the technicality of information access rights, right? I think it's 6.11 and 6.4. I don't remember off the top of my head. It looks like 6.11a, yeah. Yeah, it's just saying that the, these this clause that I've negotiated in the agreement has been violated, right? And, you know, it's it, first, let's, you know, for the listeners, there's never been a case where a merger agreement has been breached and the court has even had to educate that the whole breach was based on a denial of information access rights. Doesn't exist. Why doesn't it exist, Daniel? Because a buyer 
dealing with the seller who has a merger agreement in place and negotiates you know, information, public documents, et cetera, whatever, uh, stuff to, to share with the lenders. You know, you know, housekeeping typically is the category that this would fall under, you know, provided you, you didn't have something that just happened, right? Like we like we pointed out in freezing this acorn, uh, where all of a sudden it's like we got a whistleblower, I need to go to work, right? And you need to, I'm gonna under these information access rights, you know, I'm gonna request like I it can turn like in theory with with, with already what it appears to be a presumptive breach, you know, you can you can use them uh to conduct you know further due diligence really um but in this case right like and in the typical case the seller gives the buyer everything he needs because the seller has sold the company right and everything the buyer requests is to close the transaction this is obviously unique because there's this kind of macro event that occurred in those three and a half weeks where prices of everything started to fall and more importantly, even, even though the price falls were, were significant, whether it was Tesla's share price or Snapchat, uh, it was market participants reaching kind of a unanimous agreement uh, in that window that asset prices, particularly in this sector broadly, not just like we're not talking about Twitter individually, which is kind of important here because it's like just kind of a broad take, but cross tech aren't going to V-shape recover, you know? Like this wasn't a correction. You know, this is, it's funny because the court will look for material adverse effect to an individual company and say, you know, has there been a durationally significant impact? I.e., like in a fraud example, it is, right? Like this was not something that was, you know, the economy slowed down. Like there's something going on at your business that significantly impaired it and it changed in a durationally significant manner from the time period that the buyer acquired it, right? But from the, from the time period that the buyer agreed to acquire it, signed the merger agreement. And because of that, the buyer deemed it to be an MAE and terminated. And then the court has to step in and, and look at the fact patterns and be like, well, I mean, is it? Like, did something really drastically change? So in this case, and you can see by the Skadden letter that they sent to Twitter, that these are kind of afterthoughts, right? So the thrust of his argument is, you just haven't given me information that I've requested and I'm entitled to it. And contrary to public speculation that I waived my information access rights, I in fact negotiated these rights, right? Like they say that in, in their letter. So uh, I don't really care what you guys think or why I decided I suddenly needed to question the MDAU, right? Yeah, I'm sure you all think it's buyer's remorse. And I mean, that is uh, what it looks like to uh, a neutral observer, but he's entitled to it. It's basically what he's saying. He's entitled to buy what he negotiated to buy. And in his opinion, right, he needs this information to be sure that those representations and warranties that Twitter has provided him are accurate. Of course, this is where you can sit here and say that people will have a you know back and forth legal argument. But I mean, Twitter has told you there's significant judgment here. Like, and beyond that, what like there's a probably a very compelling argument that like whatever the error rate is can't be disproven, right? 
Like it's like if you actually think about it and what they've walked him through, right? We look at nine thousand accounts. We come up with a number. We do it every quarter, right? We verify these independently from this sample size of MDAUs, and we get to MDAUs based on this, right? And we do that every quarter. There's no like that doesn't translate. Like it's it's essentially like two parties in theory, like or actually not even really in theory here in practice, arguing over two different things. Elon's trying to get at a number that potentially just does not exist, right? You follow me? The number of spam, no, which number number does? The the, the number of total true uh, active users, right? Like, because, I mean, you're just doing a sample size on, like there's there's a filtration that occurs to get to an MDAU. And then there's the filtration that occurs to make sure that MDAU number, you know, like what's the error margin on it from independent verification, right? He's trying to get at some sort of number of like what is fake on Twitter, right? And like his focus has been that that MDAU number is, is useless. Well, if that's M- because of how they calculate this 5%, and he thinks that 5% is way higher, right? But we just walk through, like there's just, there's a test that's done every quarter, right? Like, what's he gonna, what's he gonna argue with? Once they tell him that, that this is the test, they represented it, like he knows exactly what it is now. And their disclosure says that like, this test uses significant judgment, right? And, the number could be higher, but this is what we do. And it's consistently providing a number that is below 5%, right? So like, that's all it disclosed to the market. So the fact that he wants to, the fact that he wants to disprove that, right? Which is really what he's been doing here. It's not like a, like he's, he's just basically decided like, I need to conduct my own due diligence after signing. And they need to give me everything I can, you know, to prove that this this number could be very off. When they've told him this number could be very off, right? But like, is that even material to Twitter? Like, let's like, it's like what he's tossed around, by the way, is just kind of absurd that like, you know, it could be up to 90%, right? If it was 90%, like, why are they doing an independent verification? And uh you know, why are they using phone numbers and everything else? And why do they have, I'm guessing, I don't know, 10 guys working on this every day or five guys or whatever, right? You just do a hundred, verify it and, uh, you know, track the data day after day. And then they calculate a number at the end of the quarter, right? So. Well, and one it, of the things I took away from the complaint, we had earlier, when he went to the all-in summit or whatever it was the way he talked and i think we covered this sounded like he was either purposefully obfuscating or just not grasping the point of 20 percent of users is different from 20 percent of mdaus and i think they paint pretty compelling case that it's possible he didn't care about the difference but that he had every opportunity to know to understand what mdaus are I mean, it's yeah, hard they to say that they say he, he admitted to not reading their explanation. Right. I mean, it's really they do a really nice job. I, like 
nothing in here was terribly surprising, but it's pretty convincing to imagine from what little we've seen of Parag in public. Ned Siegel has been on Twitter spaces with a lot of thin twits. He's been kind of out there. It's pretty easy to imagine them like sort of chasing Elon to just say like, hey, we'll give you the numbers. Like, Elon, we're here, we're here, we're here. And him. But that's the whole issue here, right? Like, I mean, Elon had like... E- Elon beams in above everybody in the all-in podcast. He beams in, at, you know, uh, at, at some like forum on on huge screens where he's larger than life in every situation, right? Uh, he shows up, you know, to the Twitter all hands. Uh, he's 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 on his phone, right? Video camera, and just like you know, holding it. Uh, uh, and yeah, we've seen like these are, I guess, like the they're. Uh, let's call them agreeable types of personalities, right? And Elon's kind of larger than, than life, you know, tech messiah almost. So uh, the, the picture of them running after him, like just to get to talk to him and just like, hey, like, we, we, I, we, like I just want to show you what, what, like, how you don't get it, right? Like, it's just like, I mean, for anyone probably that's an opportunity to A, have a face-to-face with him, right? Which very few people seem to get, uh, you know, and be like, actually like sh- share with him something where you have expertise on, right? And, and, and in theory, like you're talking to this, you know, brilliant uh, entrepreneur and like you get to, you know, help him understand something better. Like what person doesn't want to do that in, in their area of expertise, right? But like he's, there's like a Howard Hughes element to the way he's been behaving, right? Like, can you picture Howard Hughes today? Like if he could just, you know, sit at home, uh, not have to physically see any more than three people and and run his empire, <laughs> right? Like, uh, like you can make an argument that like Elon has moved at least somewhat, somewhat more in that direction uh, throughout COVID. In, in the sense that he just kind of beams into places and he's in his own comfortable controlled environment. He does not have to interact with that many people physically or personally outside of a limited sphere. Right. So, and that can lead to, that can lead you to, to developing mm, tunnel vision, and an echo chamber around yourself. Right. Like, I don't think it's unreasonable to to view these things uh, with respect to him. So yeah, I mean, I, I I totally agree with you. Like the picture of them is probably consistent with what the complaint shows. Like they they're trying to get access to him. He's missing meetings. He's flaking, right? And he's frustrating them. I've dealt with with a person, by the way, like a you know a, a billionaire. Right, and in, in past experience, who would do stuff like this? Just like, and and you and you you you, you're in a position where you're just like, well, he's just like he's he has more important things to do, but like, you'd also get a bit confused because like they want to to discuss something, they want a specific answer, then they flake, <laughs> then they come back, and then they flake again. So I can see that. Uh, Parag and Ned, like, you know, he's raised some issues. They just want to explain it to him perfectly. And I think, 
you don't really need to be a genius here. He's trying to establish a pretext to re restrike the deal, right? Let's see, either to try to significantly restrike the deal using, you know, the world's richest man doesn't become the world's richest man by overpaying. So like he's going to, he has the resources to try to pay less. And you've seen how far this has gone with people discussing the possibility of him even ignoring a court of law, right? And that, that this actually factors into the opinion. Uh, Do you think if he had just, uh, first of all, I guess a two-part question, because I'm thinking about this complaint and what Twitter wants to share. Do you think, A, there's a possibility that he has said bluntly to them, we can have, uh, I would be open if we rediscuss price. He mentioned it a couple of times in public. Nope. Nope. You don't say that. That would be, that, that would be, a, that would be like a smoking an explicit breach. Yeah. And that would have made it into the complaint. And so then the other question is, so you're saying it's like, he makes all this noise. Is that the only way he could get back to, I want to recut the deal? Like we saw just now with who bought Anna plan was it Tomo Bravo just bought Anna plan and yeah. they managed to cut the deal. Does he have to file for termination first before he can have that sort of discussion? Or was there some like smarter way well, for well, him? Well, I mean, Bravo asserted something that they very clearly felt uh, like Anna plan had stumbled into as far as the bonus pool. Right. And uh, clearly Anna plan saw that as something that could be, uh, that could be problematic. Otherwise you would have totally, you would have totally ignored it, but like it was minute enough, you know, to translate into like a four or 5% discount. I think there's uh, other factors in play there. I mean, Bravo does nothing but buy software companies and software companies have stock-based compensation and they have retention and you're buying it and you're spending whatever it is, 11 billion. Uh, are you going to bitch about what, what, what was it? Uh, 45 million or so difference uh, versus what they'd agreed to and what this like, you know, excess retention pool is. They're basically saying like, you know, the, the approach to, to look at how technical that got you know, the approach of Anaplan was that like, we have a significant attrition. So in aggregate, it works out to, you know, uh, uh, what we agreed upon with you, right? Like you're not, we're not spending more in this time period than we had discussed with you uh, with our plan. But their response was that, well, actually we factored in the attrition as a benefit to us. So you are, right? So it's like a bunch of these employees left and. You know, these options were canceled and uh, you benefited. We expected to benefit from this. So like that's it's such a, a minute thing that like in in a good environment, it's no big deal. But like from when they signed that merger agreement to when this started, like you don't need much to like just follow the head of the firm's tweets, right? Like he's got a genesis of tweets that go from you know, people uh, people being preoccupied with sales multiples are long-term losers on wonderful businesses. To uh, all that matters is real, real, real cash flow, right? To anyone thinking investing in public software companies uh, uh, that there's a premium out there 
for PE buyers, you know, to come in and show up. Uh, there's too many software companies and too few unwilling PE buyers right now with not enough money. So don't expect, uh, he's like literally talking down the valuations even further, right? He's saying, don't count, don't count me in as a premium. So like you see, you should trade at an even bigger discount, right? In which case I'm sure that they would actually step up what they would be buying. <laughs> so like, that's like something that evolved so clearly. And the seller just wasn't paying attention. So the seller is like thinking it's just a few million dollars, right? But no, it's the buyer wanting to pay uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions less, right? And you expose yourself to that. In, in Elon's case, right? It's definitely a, a version of the same thing, but much higher stakes at hand and uh, a seller who's in a much better situation and totally aware of what's happening because it happened so quick, right? Like there was a, there, there was such a short time period between what, when he started, you know, May 9th, I think and April 24th, you know, and like they even tell you in the complaint, like the track changes at Morgan Stanley, like you essentially see someone building a legal case, you know, building a, a pretext, you know, for termination, right? There's, they, they started moving in a direction to make requests and do things and, and like create uh, tension between the parties uh, that was, you know, contrary to closing, even though you're pretending like you're, go, everything you're doing is the closing, the seller can see that you're not, right? So like there's like they're not going to go like they're going to start making a bunch of requests and Twitter is going to be like well I mean we saw what Twitter was doing there was like I think there was there was room to wonder whether or not Twitter was like relying heavily on what it doesn't have to share right particularly with his public behavior right like you, like whether it was the all in podcast interview where he's like I got 4.7 million likes and that's the second most you know it's right behind uh, Black Panther, right? And being like, that, that's odd, right? I have 100 million followers. There's 220 million daily active users. I only got 4.7 million likes, even though it's actually high engagement, right? If you get into, uh, if you want to look, and we, we discussed this last time, so no, no need to get into it. But like, that's essentially what he says triggered him, right? That's what we're really working off of. So supposedly that happened and that caused him to, uh, you know, pull up, you know, open the SEC filings finally, which I guess he didn't do, or he didn't bother listening to what his lawyers uh, said about it. And just be like, okay, I have information and access rights here. I just need, I, I now need to, to conduct an audit of this. Okay. Because I now believe because of the response to my Coke tweet, that this is absurd. And then he's, and then let's say he starts, you know, him being who he is, he has one of his, uh, you know, confidants, you know, contact a couple of firms who've audited uh, uh, or, or tracked data of Twitter accounts and spam since like advertising and spam uh, and social media is just a well-established thing, 
And they come back to him with reports and say, well, here's this report. And he just looks to the very first chart and he sees 25%. And then he says on the far right, Twitter is 5%. What's he going to think? Now you would think he would drill into it since just like in the footnotes, like they kind of disclose very clearly what their numbers are based off of. They don't say, they don't say Twitter is a different set, right? But like I said, this is how we got to ours. But I mean, you could just, I mean, based on his behavior, you could just assume that like he looks at it, he's like, I knew it, right? <laughs> because that's what he wants to see at this point. And he starts requesting more. And then like, you know, he starts creating this environment where it's like, let's meet. Oh, I actually didn't even read that. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to sit down and, and, and have a one-on-one to discuss it. Oh, I'm not coming today. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sending so-and-so. And by the way, don't discuss MDAUs with so-and-so. Just you know, discuss uh, uh, your plan and and you know help him tick some more boxes to close the merger. MDUs. That's I'm working on that. Okay, I have a new guy involved. You know, he's dealing with the uh, debt financing. You need to talk to him. I'm, the guy never shows up, right? Then I get a letter. Then we get a letter saying I, I need this. And like we, we, like well, he didn't want to talk to us. But okay. They obviously knew what they were dealing with. So like, I'd say they played very good chess here. I mean, the fact that they have shared with him that they do 100 a day, clearly they've shared with him exactly what they do, just haven't showed him uh, <laughs> the, the actual daily audits, right? And he's just gone out and put that on Twitter. Right. I mean, that kind of go, that compound really had a good s- synthesis of this where like, and you know, the complaint, the complaint really does lay it out within a, with, in a powerful way within the broader, broader context of the, the exception they negotiated with respect to information access rights. But before he made his bid, he said, I'm going to do one of three things. I'm going to sit on the board. I'm going to buy Twitter, take it private, or I'm going to launch a competitor. Right. So he changed his mind on the first one, right? And then he went straight to the second one. He signs a deal to buy Twitter. Three and a half weeks later, he starts requesting information. He says this deal is on pause. He no longer wants to buy Twitter, supposedly, or he's undecided while he requests information, really super detailed information that could potentially cause him not to buy Twitter. What's option number three that he said he was going to be interested in? Launching a competitor. (laughs) What have you negotiated with information access rights? I don't need to share anything with you that could competitively hurt me if the deal doesn't close. And by the way, highly unusual clause. You know, I mean, I've read a ton of merger agreements over the years. And you, you typically don't need to focus so much in detail. But like, I've never seen... The an, an exception like that on the information rights that like was so unique to a business, right? And the transaction in and of itself. It's usually like, you know, there could be a potential other bidder. So we don't have to share with you like what we may think uh, we're worth in a more competitive bid. Obviously, you don't have to share stuff that's privileged. And obviously, you don't have to share stuff uh, that legally you can't share, right? But I've never seen someone say, we don't have to share anything with you that could hurt us if the deal doesn't close. 
Well, when someone's using the information access rights to try to break the deal, that would that umbrella essentially would cover every single request, right, on MDAUs. And every single request with respect to how they measure uh, what is spam and bots uh, with respect to that public disclosure, right? So, but even though that's the case, because Twitter, Twitter is, a, is a happy seller, right? Just like Elon said, your shareholders will love the price. I move straight to the end. This has tremendous potential. I'll unlock it. They like despite all this, they're just assuming that like got the world's richest man on paper, uh, and he's told me he's paying a ninety percent premium to peers. He knows it, so like I, I will share everything with him, and I'm not worried about competing with him because he's going to own me because I have an agreement that he owns me, right? At fifty four twenty. You know, provided that I tick these boxes and clear these typical hurdles. And he's now just actively seeking to breach. So, look, the complaint's fantastic, covers everything. And I mean, like, if we just want to summarize it for the listeners, uh, like, you, you could have taken a view that, yes, Elon's trying to establish a pretext to breach the deal. And like, you could have read this, you could have inferred this uh, from uh, their termination. Uh, notice the Twitter is that there, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that like he's unsatisfied no matter what happens, right? Like I request this data, I get it. I say that's not what I really requested, right? It's subjective, right? So that like you you were going to be 100% dealing with a judge having to educate, you know, because it's not like Twitter just is going to ignore his letters, right? So he's going to claim something was ignored. They're going to claim it wasn't like that's kind of like the box that you were like, you knew that he had to go through a period of making a bunch of requests and then say, okay, 30 days passed. It wasn't cured. I didn't get what I needed terminate. Right. So he essentially needed like two months, right. To establish, uh, uh, the pretext for termination. So you knew you were going to be dealing with that. We just didn't know like how cooperative Twitter had been behind the scenes. And we didn't know if we were going to be dealing with a scenario where Twitter was just going to be, you know, uh, very difficult and uh, well within their rights, but still very difficult of hiding behind the provided exception that they don't have to share anything with him that could harm Twitter. Okay. Uh, if the deal doesn't close, because once he started and, and like well, the Wachtell lawyers do a great job. They're like, look, he, ne he negotiated a very narrow right for information access, which he is, which he has been abusing to conduct post deal due diligence to break the deal. Right. Presumptively. Like some people will sit there and say, they're going to read this. Right? Like, that's just not the case. Right. Like, he, like there's a, there's a bad faith element here. And more importantly, they spun it around and they're just like, look, the only person who's clearly breached is him, which means he can't terminate, <laughs> you know? Like, look, that's the beauty of this. The buyer can't walk because the buyer is in breach, right? So I think people are missing that, which is kind of a, a, a nice element here. But I mean, with respect to the stock price, which is all that we care about, right? <laughs> and how it ends. Like, I don't think much of this really matters at this point. Like, 
it's pretty clear that on ordinary course of business, they negotiated an exception, right? Like he wanted the right to be able to fire anybody over. Uh, he wanted the approval of any changes over anybody over VP level. And because it's seller friendly, which they mentioned like 50 million times in there, they negotiated that away, the flexibility. But even though they negotiated that flexibility away, they went to him for approval, both on that and their credit line, right? Which is undrawn, which will need to be canceled, which they're paying fees for, right? So, and first he said, cancel it. Then he said, don't, right? Presumably because he's thinking that if he doesn't close the deal, that's a problem, that's damages, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, and he just didn't sign off on uh, uh, the, the, the retention plans, right? And Twitter has just done nothing because he hasn't signed off. So they're suffering damages while he's doing nothing, right? So they're well covered under ordinary course of business. Ordinary course of business, like you saw in my write-up before all this came out, it was an interesting potential angle because it was used in, uh, in COVID uh, to like backdoor your way into a material adverse effect by a buyer of, uh, of uh, hotels, right? Because the, the threshold for establishing an MEAE, you know, has become so high, like really the, the only case they've genuinely determined it in uh, seems to rise to the level of just pure fraud, right? That the only way buyers have been able to get out of kind of these like external macro shocks has now been plain language, ordinary course of business covenants where like somebody just stumbles, right? In that window. And like, you literally have to be paranoid and over communicating the entire time. Like you bought it, you own it. What do you want to do? <laughs> right? Like just I'm outsourcing my, like any, anything that's remotely relevant as a, as a, a material uh, decision with respect to the business, like just to be safe. Okay. Now, in reality, the the COVID cases don't really fall in that category. Like, if I'm buying hotels from you, and in the interim, you shut two of them down totally and operate a couple, several more reduced staffing, that's pretty fucking material change, right? That's not ordinary course of business. Even though you did it because there's a pandemic, presumptively, there was, uh, you know, regulatory things that like factored into it, maybe anticipating them. Uh, maybe they were, you know, a gray area, whatever. You weren't sure, uh, but you closed the hotels. Like, and the court has said this, like you were warranted and it makes sense. Uh, but we're reading plain language here and a reasonable buyer, you know, should not have expected you in, in, in the time period between signing and closing to shut them down. Had you communicated with him and gotten his approval, you'll be fine. So everyone starts rewriting ordinary course of business to essentially carve out MAE exceptions, right? Which in like Twitter's case, they've done. Like ordinary course of business, except with everything related to COVID, <laughs> you know? But we can, we, we, can, we can, I think, confidently conclude that, you know, firing, hiring, uh, you know, at anything around knowledge workers for uh, a human-based business, you know, tech company intangible, like that's ordinary course of business. You're going to change people at the top. 
you're going to bring in new guys. You're going to institute a hiring freeze. Uh, you're going to do all these things. So, yeah. And, and I think I, I want to get to like where we go from here, but I just wanted to comment that the thing I've just, it's not surprising, but it is still impressive to read this all spelled out. And and like you said, this is one side of the case, but Musk just seems eminently uncurious and or lazy about all of this. Like, and that's just... Some people have characterized it as a joke on his part. I don't think that's the case. Uh, uh, His memes aren't helpful. I mean, they did actually, in in the complaint, characterize it as a joke. Like, you've seen a ton of articles... uh, like he never really wanted to buy it. This was just a big publicity stock. Like I don't believe that, right? Yeah, I don't think I believe. But there is a there is a lack of. I said I'm curious. You could also say just a lack of. It's it's either a lack of seriousness about you know a frivolity about it, not a joke, but just like I'll do it and then I won't, or it's and this is I think one of the we'll get to sort of the big I think the big questions people are asking. One of them is just fundamentally this feeling that he is Teflon and that he will, whether it's because- I don't think that's the case, right? Like, so he's a he's a very different person today than let's say he was when 420. Like, if we just want to sum up 420, which he got fined, and which he definitely made a statement that uh, clearly a court determined was inaccurate with respect to funding secure, you know, a verbal commitment uh, to work with you guys in any which way, whether take private, invest, et cetera. It is not, you know, a board approved uh, diligence backed uh, term sheet. Right. So and he still doesn't see it that way. But like that was like, you know, out of one mouth, he says that was definitely a settlement that I had to pay to the SEC and admit I lied when I did it. You know, those motherfuckers. Right. (laughs) Uh, he still sees it that way. And out of the same mouth and the same conversation, he'll tell you Tesla was on the, was on the verge of death then. It was very dark times. Right. And like, he doesn't seem to feel the need to reconcile that. Like it was on the verge of death. You're admitting it, you know, you're close to the lights going out, which is why you had to go to some, someone who you, a group you assumed, which a lot of people tend to assume about this group, Right, who would commit to doing a transaction without no, you know, nosing around in the books, right? Because you would not have to meet with them if you could just go to any willing buyers and open the books, right? So here's what it looks like. You want to get involved, right? You wouldn't. It wouldn't be dark times if you could do that. So there's like that inconsistency that's so blatant in what he says. And he did like he, he discussed the same two things in the same interview. And he's so adamant. And like technically, maybe he's like you you could say in his mind, he's right. Like someone told him, I'm in, right? And like you saw the exchanges with him, like, you need to come out and publicly back me because you said this, or I'll never talk to you again. Like <laughs> if I'm never gonna talk to you again, what does that do? <laughs> right? It means I need you, right? Like if I didn't need you, I'd just be like, fuck you whatever we're moving on and be like these guys uh these guys did a 180 or whatever no he wanted to use he wa- he wanted to turn that verbal that yes as soon as he heard those words probably in that meeting right in his head he's like i can tweet this and this projects strength right that's it that's all he was thinking about he wanted to project strength well and that's that's right? what i'm trying to get at there's like a 
you know, and by people, projecting strength, nine-dimensional like chess, but it's not. It's not it's, really nine-dimensional chess. It's like if you have if you have a business, and you say whale is interested, and and I told them, you know what, like maybe maybe I should take it private and stop doing these headings. And the whale said, you know, we're we're behind you on whatever you want to do. Okay. Now I haven't told the whale that I'm on the verge of bankruptcy, and it's really touch and go. And I'm desperate for financing to accomplish certain production needs, right? And like they could be wiped out, okay? And if they took a close look, it wouldn't, right? Now, what I intended to do with the with the whale, okay, is just say that he committed, and then go to somebody else say I've got the whale, right? And that softens everybody up who's willing to look at me and potentially the public markets, right? And like that actually the act of that alleviates some of the financial stress that I'm, that I'm dealing with and buys me more time because I in fact cannot complete a transaction because I know that they will have to do, they will have to get their board to approve it and they will have to clear regulatory hurdles. And in the process, they will have to comb through my books. Okay. So like there's that whole dynamic there. That's a very different Musk. Right. Like he was doing what he had to do to keep Tesla alive. And it it worked out better for him. Like that's why he's enjoyed this. You know, Tim Cook wouldn't take my calls, like, you know, a bunch of people, et cetera. Like he got through this despite all that happening. And, you know, there was, you know, COVID, uh, the Fed's activity, you know, uh the, the 180 degree turn, you know, the, the Fed did on on rates at the end of 2018. That bought him time, right? So he got what he needed, and you know he's come out on the other end, you know, from someone who was on the verge of b- bankruptcy and putting every last cent he's had into this with like no safety net, to on, on paper the world's richest man. Now, you know, he's interested in buying Twitter, and like it's a whole different scenario, right? Like he's not desperate. He can demand whatever he wants. He can behave like the people who who he's despised in the past. I don't know if you ever read his book, but like the the initial Tesla investor, uh, I think it's Vantage Point. Like it was a, a big investor in Tesla. The guy made over a billion dollars. And Musk was like, when he needed money, like the guy essentially made me come in and beg it, beg him for it just to say no. And he's a piece of shit, right? Uh, but like, that's what he had to deal with with some of the financing partners, you know, throughout throughout his uh, throughout his time period of uh, waging this this battle to get Tesla to where it is. So, I mean, he's dealt with, with you know, let's call them pricks, ruthless folks on the finance side, right? And. Like he knows how they can behave, you know, walk away, not return a call, et cetera. Now the shoe's on the other foot, right? Like he's he's bigger than all of them combined. So like, I do think that there's a little bit here where like he's just behaving in that manner because he knows he can. He just delegates to some people to like, you know, go get me a lower price. So, I'm going to do everything I can to get a lower price. Uh, 
and I'm going to project that. And here's, and, and you know, maybe he just came up with the strategy. He's like, look, the bots, the bots is it, right? There's no way those numbers are reliable. Everybody knows they have a bot problem. All I need to do is get super loud about it. But it's, it, it's ironically the worst thing to focus on because it's so well established, right? You know, it's like the one area where like, Everyone agrees this is part of advertising online. And I mean, like you can go back to 2017 and just be like, there's 25% of the actual accounts are fake. Uh, this is how it impacts CPM. You know, if I'm spending $30 million in advertising on Twitter, right? Like I literally have very technically savvy guys in place, you know, who know how to measure ROI and like who know how to deal with click fraud and everything else, right? And determine whether or not they're getting what they need to get for their spend. <laughs> I mean, Twitter is obviously more, and, and Twitter is the, the, the most extreme example of that because it's, you know, 85% plus brand, right? So it's not direct response conversion where like you wouldn't have nearly this type of problem. So like you have to be very focused on it and anyone helping you with advertising is going to tell you, right? Like straight up, like this is what you're dealing with here and this is how we measure it. So like if, if there's all these public firms in, in, in you know, in the ad tech space and, you know, uh, and, and like in the agency space around this type of stuff for online advertising, uh, who pub have been publishing these reports for years, right? And just like, here are estimates of what percentage of so-and-so's followers are fake and, you know, everything else. Like, you're not bringing anything new to the table. And, it, it, and beyond that, it is highly unlikely it changes anything for any single person advertising on Twitter, unless it's a, it's a massive fraud. And if it was a massive fraud, right? Like someone in the advertising space probably would have figured it out, you know, with all the tools that they have and with all the turnover that occurs between, you know, supposedly Twitter is not a cutthroat environment, right? And like, it's so laissez-faire and hands-off and employee-friendly. Like you think inside of that environment, there's just like, you know, two people, who have been aware of a massive cover-up while everyone else is chilling. <laughs> it's, like it's the exact opposite culture. Like you get massive fraud out of places where you have the type of people who are just hitting numbers like no tomorrow, right? And delivering ridiculous, ridiculous financial performance so consistently and there's like a small group that is so critical to that. They never change, right? And uh, they're essentially protect the fraud, right? Like that's how it works. Is I, have you seen this new uh, Netflix series? It's, you know, a mockumentary of the wire card. I haven't. I should, should check it out. Like, but like, that's yeah. a good example of it, right? There's like one guy behind the scenes, you know, there's like the charismatic CEO and then there's a COO who is like, non-stop managing all this and you know dealing with all the drama that comes with 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 maintaining uh uh, uh the operational secrets uh that nobody wants to really get into all right well i mean that's enough on the like we you know i mean like the, the case itself yeah what's what happens next like where's it where's it go from here did they ask to Four days in September, I think it is. Or yeah, so I said 60 days, what, last week when I wrote this up. Uh, 
I said 60 days and they're giving you, uh, sub, uh, they're requesting an expedited September trial. And we talked about like, there's been first thing like, okay, this is one thing where people have been like, this could be tied up in litigation for years. No. Right. They're requesting a trial and we already have the judge McCormick and, you know, she did the deco pack case, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, uh, she's the chancellor, you know, the top dog. Uh, and, uh, Twitter is motioned to file for expedited trial because, you know, they got like a, you know, the first cutoff date for this deal is October 22nd, I think, or 24th. Right. So they, they want something where they can have a four day trial and then the Supreme court, you know, can confirm the opinion, which will take another like 10 days to two weeks. Right. That's how fast it is. So when they're saying the 60 days in between is sufficient time for uh, the discovery process. Right. So this is going to happen lightning fast, and clearly, uh, clearly the top dog wants the case, uh, and she's taking it. So, like, I don't think she seems to be in the camp of like I, I don't want to deal like I don't want to deal with the Elon headache, and I'm sure people will start to focus on her uh, because this is politicized. The other she also she also has an opinion that is the most friendly in the history of the court for the enforcement of uh, specific performance on the behalf on, on the part on the part of the seller. That's the KKR deco pack one, right? That's been yeah. going. So because that, that case both that, that case does two things here, right? Specific performance is contingent uh, uh, you know in the language of the merger agreement, it's an available remedy provided that debt financing is in place. Right. And one of the big things with this transaction is like, what if before it gets to that stage, the debt financing is not in place, right? And she used the doctrine of prevention. In that case, right, like COVID happens, uh, DecoPack, for those that don't know, you know, uh, sells like, uh, you know, technology and materials for cake to grocery stores, right? It's a good business. Of course, COVID happens and it's like, uh, nobody's ever going to want to eat cake anymore. Uh, I, I don't know if you've read her opinion, by the way. But like, I, I heard she, that it was like clever, is what I, yeah, I saw quite, that she opens, she opens with a Julia, Child, a Julia Child's quote. <laughs> a party without cake is just a meeting. The, de the decorated cake stands as a defining feature of celebratory gatherings, and with exception of the adept in Home Baker, the cultural trend is to outsource preparation of these celebratory centerpieces to in-store supermarket bakeries. <laughs> so I, like, if you read the whole opinion and it's like, you know, it's twice the complaint. So it's like a hundred plus pages. Uh, she interjects a lot of her own, you know, her, there's a sprinkle of her personality uh, throughout this thing, <sighs> which maybe, maybe, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, a reason for people to poke at her on the Elon side. But yeah, it doesn't look good uh, because she's just ruled in a case uh, where they like she's come up with her own test, right? So like, uh, let me let me pull it up here. All right, here it is. A party seeking specific performance must establish that one, a valid contract exists; two, he is ready, willing, and able to perform; and three, that the balance of equities tips in favor of the party seeking performance. This court has not hesitated to 
order performance in cases of this nature, particularly where sophisticated parties represented by sophisticated counsel stipulate that specific performance would be an appropriate remedy in the event of breach. So basically, she's saying, you put this in the contract, right? And you've got the top lawyers, they've got the top lawyers, and you've stuck it in there, right? There has to be a breach for us, for us as the court not to rule in this, in this direction. Now, this is very interesting because I don't know if you saw yesterday, there was a former chancellor of the court, or I think she was a vice chancellor, and on someone CNBC. who sat on the Supreme Court of Den Delaware from 1994 to 2014, she retired in 14, who came out and said, this will settle. The court does not want to enforce specific performance. This is, by the way, like, if you want to talk about the mindfuck that is this case, uh, that there's this whole situation. Like you read, so, and all this time going through this stuff, you see, she, you read the complaint, you read what he wrote. Like you've been reading what I've been writing for the last couple of months. Uh, we're obviously working off of case law, certain fact patterns, you know, understanding of the advertising industry. Well, what happened in the market in those two and a half to three weeks, which was pretty epic, right? That shit happens once in twenty years. So you don't have a buyer who's like who goes from this is an amazing price. Please, like you cannot reject me. You may have to, but like. You know, it, it's so good, right? Like, I'm going to do so much with Twitter. It's going to be amazing, right? And then two and a half weeks later, just be like, the deal's on pause. Uh, explain to me uh, how many bots are on the platform. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it, it's just such a, it's a wild fact pattern, but it's like also the classic buyer's remorse. But despite all this, and despite everything you go through, and you see this complaint, and you're like, he's, he's going to get eviscerated. And like, you know, you finally see the complaint and it is a true evisceration, right? Like it just does not make him look good at all. And even though you expect the complaint to be one-sided, like you already had a picture in your head from like where it would go. And, and, and like, it really does go so strongly in that direction. And then a judge from this court for a 20 year judge on the Supreme court and a former vice chancellor is like, Court's not going to want to use specific performance. There'll, there'll be damages. They'll be significant, but they're like they don't want to take the chance that he doesn't he doesn't honor uh, the uh, specific performance demand, right? And then like you go to these cases and you say that the person who's assigned and just reading it to you, right, is so biased towards specific performance. She wants contract certainty. She literally says this is a win for contracts. Right at the end of her at the end of the decision, here the party stipulated to the remedy of specific performance, but the stipulation applies if and only if the full proceeds of the debt financing have been funded. This is where this one gets even better. Not only do they go into specific performance, which has been, uh, you know, the precedent of these cases all the way back to IBP uh, uh, Tyson in 2000, right? She comes up with a she applies a doctrine of prevention, all right, because after this after after Depot Pack's business drop, you know, uh, Cobra comes out, goes to their, you know, to their bankers and comes up with like way worse projections for the target. Right. Right. I and and then asks for better financing terms. Right. So they're like, by the way, our projections have changed. Uh, but, oh, and, and we want better terms. Right. So, like, you know, torpedoing their financing. Why would you do those two things? Right is to torpedo your own debt financing. And then once it gets torpedoed, they come back and say, you know what? We think an MAE has happened here, but that doesn't even matter 
because there is no debt financing, so you can't request specific performance. So sorry, right? And she says the profession doctrine provides that where the party's breach of by non-performance contributes materially to the non-occurrence of a condition of one of his duties, the non-occurrence is excused. So basically, if you blow up your own debt financing by actively trying not to close the transaction, then specific performance that is conditioned upon the financing being in place is no longer excused because the financing is not in place. So not only do we have someone who's, who's leaning, uh, who, who's heavily in the camp of specific performance, we have one who's, who's actually just decided a case where she applied a doctrine of prevention uh, to, uh, to, a, to a seller uh, requesting specific performance from a buyer uh, with the debt financing not in place, despite the fact that the merger agreement requires it to be in place to request specific performance, right? So this is like, you know, like if she's just going to quote herself, <laughs> you know, when she's going through the analysis and she's like, you know, in Depot, in, in KK acquisition versus Depot pack holdings, you know, this court found, right. And just starts fitting this pack, that factor, uh, fact pattern in here. Where does it end? It ends with, we order the parties to perform. Thank you. So the, the only, uh, I'm, I mentioned earlier, yeah, I'm just trying to sort of agglomerate all the sort of questions that have come up since the final pieces were put into place. So they, you mentioned the woman who, the former judge, she had this idea of we're not going to require, uh, we're not going to want to risk not being obeyed, which seems like its own moral hazard. Well, sure. so, the, so she was judged. So I'll, I'll, let me read this to you. Pull this up as well because... And you would get into this on the call. So IBP Tyson Foods, you know, 2000 case, which has been kind of the landmark precedent around MAE, uh, which has made it very difficult to establish an MAE. But specific performance was ordered there. You know, you got Tyson buying IBP. Uh, you know, things go bad in the in in the in in that in that food processing industry for them. Uh, really quickly, and. Buyer has remorse. It's trying to get off. Specific performance is ordered. Okay, here's what they said at the end of it. In view of these factors, after they after they determined there was no breach, right? In view of these factors, I am persuaded that an award of specific performance is appropriate, regardless of what level of showing was required by IBP. That is, there is clear and convincing evidence to support this award. Such an award is decisively preferable to a vague and imprecise damages remedy that cannot adequately remedy the injury to IBP stockholders, okay? So, and that's the conclusion part where like they're, they're, they're emphasizing it. In you know, the discussion, they're like, look, Tyson, you wanted to buy this company. Damages here are huge. Uh, we don't want to even get into it because I want to hit you with all huge damages and you're going to get nothing, right? So. We're going to give you what you negotiated for because there's no breach, right? But there's no breach. You're going to be better off. Both parties are better off together, right? Than us just making you come out of pocket and pay huge damages and end up with nothing. They're going to tell Elon the same thing. They're going to be like, there's no breach. In fact, you breached. Uh, you know, you want to buy Twitter. Uh, you think Twitter is the public square. 
you say it has tremendous potential, you can unlock it. Well, here's your chance. Like, we could sit here and figure out what damages are. Are they going to be 10, 15, whatever billion dollars? You know, that just doesn't make sense for this court. We're not going to get into this subjective analysis. Like, go buy Twitter because that's what you negotiated. And that's it. Like, that's, that's the way you look at it. Now, like, the, the, this is where you get fascinated by people who just now say the exact opposite because the court has been, whether it's Boston Scientific Channel Meta Systems, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, What's that? The other one from oh wait, the chemical one. Uh, um, Huntsman, Huntsman, uh, uh, Huntsman. I think it was Huntsman, Huntsman Hex. Mm. Oh, okay. Hexion, Hexion. That's okay. So, like, there's like four or five cases that, that they cite, whether it's IBP Tyson. Uh, Boston Scientific Channel Met, uh, uh, Huntsman, uh, Hexion, or now, uh, you know, KK uh, Deep uh, Decopack, right? So, like, there's a wide body of them. On the other end, there's the private equity got off the off of for ordinary course of business. Uh, in uh, I don't remember the name of it, but the the hotel case from at the at the end of 2020, mm. and that's where they didn't get specific performance. Because they determined a plain a plain language breach occurred. So then the, the other things that sort of stand out are that I that, you know we've talked about the Musk factor specifically. We've talked about this weird notion of what the court wants to doesn't want to enforce. The other two things I think that people are still wrapping their heads around. You sort of addressed the second one, which is that ultimately it feels like Twitter shareholders aside twitter is a company it's almost a prisoner's dilemma of twitter doesn't actually want to belong to elon and elon doesn't want to seem to own it now i actually think that elon should this should he be forced to own it he'll be back to loving the pro you know he'll, he may clean out and everything but he's going to be a happy owner but there's that part and there's this also idea just that this, twitter does not want to be like what is twitter anymore there is no, well, founder, no i know what you, know, you mean like whether it's evan williams or jack or whatever those guys are gone when you see a former founder, you're like, if I was still on the board, I know you have fiduciary. All Twitter is, is that board and the fiduciaries, okay? And all, like, their only attachment to it, and they know it ends, you know, with this transaction, right? Is their fiduciary obligation. Maybe the CEO uh, is kept on as an employee, right? But even in his case, there's a, like, a very strong possibility that he gets a payout and he's done. Right. So what is Twitter? Right. Twitter is essentially, you know, in this exact mode. Right. It's just that board doing their job. They are separate from the employee base and everything else. They had an unsolicited bid. They went through the process. They hired the advisors. Right. They reviewed it and they determined it was in the best interest of, of everybody to accept that bid. Remember. All those employees have stock in Twitter, okay? So this whole concept of like, he's gonna buy it and fire, but like, well, is, is he planning on lighting, is spending 44 billion and lighting it on fire? And, you know, yeah, sure. That's not what this, that's not what this guy does, you know? Like people paint him as like, he's, uh, 
he's out there to do these wild and crazy things. That's not what he's doing, right? Like he actually thinks what he's doing makes sense whenever he does it. Uh, and you could argue that what he's doing here makes perfect sense, which is immediately recognizing that uh, he paid a significant premium and interjecting a ton of doubt and leveraging his persona to somehow negotiate a discount of some sort for him and his equity capital partners. Remember, he's not alone in this. You know, I mean, you got everyone from like Fidelity to Qatar to 816Z to Sequoia, right? Didn't like either, Larry Ellison. either you or Compound at some point made the case though that his suing, his terminating took them all off the hook, didn't it? No, Compound did definitely not. Compound corrected that. Oh, okay. I said that 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 this is the case based on uh, a highlighted, Anthony had sent me a highlighted uh, uh, excerpt that said, you know, from, from the commitment letter that says that they're, uh, they're off the hook for, for a legal scenario. And then like right outside of that, just like there's a provided, like if you read right below it, it's like, it's a, it would be a legal issue outside of the realms of termination with respect to the merger. So we resolved, I think we resolved that like, you know, a month ago, but actually compound caught that. So, you know, kudos to compound is on top of that. By the way, nothing disparaging about Anthony. Anthony is like the Wikipedia of, uh, of information. Uh, so 99.99% of the time relying on them is great. So this uh, is the, so the value of the Twitter, the Twitter ecosystem but, right there. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's the, you know, that's where that, uh, in in the discussions around this, and there's going to be you know there's going to be errors of judgment and relying on things uh, at different points in time and so some stuff that like you you miss a you miss a comma or a semicolon and you don't realize that this has been carved out uh, when you're reading it too quickly. That's the legal. So, that's the challenge of legalism. Yeah. Um, but the, so then the other the other thing just to sort of put a final point on this. So like I think what people are still I, when I read about this, I think people still struggle to believe that the, I think the dollars here are what freak people out. And I, you know, there's an inflation joke in here and there's also the fact it should that, not matter. Right. In theory, yeah. big numbers. But again, we, I, like I said, so look, that, that retired judge, and I'm sure she's been watching a lot of stuff around Elon Musk in the, the nine years since she's practiced. Right. Uh, I don't think it's surprising that like her views have, have swayed away from the She's not involved in doing precedent all day long anymore uh, in a direction where she would get on CNBC and, and say what she said. Right. Now, when you watch that, like that person is a qualified expert, right? So you have to be an idiot to look at a qualified expert and, and not be like, well, what, like, why did they say that? Right. And I'm just telling you, like, that's a qualified expert who's been retired for nine years and we get what Elon's been doing, but she didn't cite anything with respect. Like when she had that conversation and by the way, she never did any of these, uh, you know, specific performance merger agreement cases while she was there. And I actually w went to look, uh, she was not the judge in, in any of the notable ones that occurred either in 2008, uh, Hexion, uh, I mean, by that time, anyway, she's on the Supreme Court, but uh, uh, or even back to 2000, right? I mean, I guess you know, part of part of affirming the opinion, but specific performance, it seemed like 
you know, like she was making an argument against it without saying that the court has heavily endorsed it in these in seller cases. She just seemed to want to be like, this is unique. So huge damages, even though our president and IBP Tyson calls them arbitrary, subjective, and difficult, right? Are better than specific performance, which is what two, which is what the judges here in this called two sophisticated parties, you know, with the resources on both sides, negotiated this, stuck it in there. There is no breach. So I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm enforcing it, right? Win for contract law, right? Uncertainty. That's it. You know, let's say like you didn't show up with, uh, uh, you know, uh, Saul Goodman <laughs> as your advisor on this thing. Uh, you showed up with Wachtell and, and uh, he showed up with Scadden and you've got Morgan Stanley. He's got Goldman Sachs. Right. Uh, so the other way around in this case, he, he's got Morgan Stanley. You've got Goldman Sachs. Right. But like, this is like you guys, this is what you guys do. And this is the industry you guys are in, in terms of the, the advisors you brought in. You got to this point. All I need to do is clear up whether or not this is buyer's remorse. Looks to me like it is. So no damages, uh, specific performance, you know, and you guys go take care of this. Close the transaction. All right. The argument that she's essentially making is that if the court does that, you know, Elon's going to get on Twitter the next day. Be like, I ain't closing. Right? I think we can future write that tweet, by the way. I think you could just Photoshop that. I think that's going to happen for sure. But yeah. I mean, if it's gone that far with him, right, in his head, of his behavior, then it's probably in the interest of the court to do it, right? Because, like... That's just not like that's something that his equity partners need to see. That's something everybody invested in SpaceX needs to see. That's something everybody who owns a share of Tesla needs to see, right? Uh, that's something a lot of people need to see. So I think that, like, if that's where he's at, I, I see no reason to believe that. I think what he, like, there's so much established precedent of b buyers who've determined they overpaid quickly doing exactly what he's doing. So why do you think all of a sudden that he's just, you know, a, a lawless scumbag, right? Like, he definitely doesn't look good uh, with the fact pattern that's been painted in, uh, in the complaint. But every complaint is, is ultimately is going to look like that for a seller who's trying to, for a buyer who's trying to walk away with something that happened, you know, so quickly that impaired, like, it's just unfortunate. Like, if you didn't have contracts, right? Like then you just be like, there's always an option to walk away if the price collapses, you know, in the time period before you receive the money, right? That's it. Like let's just write every contract as like, it, it's not final, you know, till closing, <laughs> right? In which case, everybody in a good market environment, right? Uh, if you know, uh, COVID valuations explode, right? You don't get to own the you don't get to own the assets since you haven't closed quickly enough. <laughs> you know the valuation triples. What you bargained for, you as the buyer don't get it either. Like there'll just be no certainty whatsoever, right? Like it's not a merger uh, till everything has happened. And like the her the whole purpose of this has been like 
you know, contract law is about what? Certainty and the ability to move. Consideration, right? Yeah. And both, like, you know, the parties need it. And, you know, once it's happened and you have that certainty, like that's the kind of the foundation of, of business. So like, this is what we've wanted, right? And this is like why the precedent that has us where we're at today looks the way it looks like. Because you want some degree of certainty, but you do want to protect buyers from potential injury of fraudulent parties. You also do want to protect buyers from you know unforeseen events that could actually permanently impact that business. Okay. Like I do not want to be in a situation where I'm spending a bunch of money on something. And in the time period to closing, it has become apparent to me that that business is now obsolete. Right. Like that, the the management team somehow find it found, found a way in that short time period to uh, run it into the ground or, you know, in the case of fraud, right. Like, They've been hiding something that nobody else has seen, and it's now apparent, right? Like that's, again, you want those protections if you're a buyer. So like you want the court to step in there. And if you want to negotiate away some ridiculous macro events, right? You go to great lengths when you're drawing your contract and negotiating to get those. And like, that's the terms that these guys, like, you know, a highly motivated buyer gives a seller a seller-friendly contract, right? Like that's part of how he got them to close the transaction. If he had not been as highly motivated and he took his time, like remember, like this was framed as like, they may say no, right? And it was framed as there's a political, there's like a, there's a lefty group that controls this board behind the scenes. You know, people always talk about this board, like it's the same board it's been for, you know, since, since Twitter was created, right? Let alone went public. And they're like they're just scheming to keep him keep him from owning it, because for all of them, it matters more that you know it goes nowhere financially, uh, but like it remains in their hands, right? As a as a as a lefty leaning uh, platform, so like he 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 gave them a lot of things supposedly to make them close faster. Had they not really wanted to sell, right? And, uh, or had he not been that motivated of a buyer, right? And they were the seller and like they were super motivated. Uh, well, they would have given him huge leeway, right? And he may have ended up in a position where it's easier to walk away. Because he would have negotiated like you know airtight things uh, in in the contract that would have allowed him to walk, you know, in that window. That's just not what happened. So like I mean like that's why like this is where we go back to the fact that like we can watch this stuff on TV. You can read all the articles. I mean it messes with my head as well, right? It's like anybody following this, it's like there's a lot of noise. Uh, well, like the best thing you can do here is just say that. Uh, you got four cases that tell you they will enforce specific performance here and uh, that they prefer enforcing specific performance 
over damages. <laughs> right? And, and you got a judge whose last case is the friendliest case in the history of the court with respect to, uh, you know, sellers dealing with a, a buyer's remorse party. Because that's what Colbert comes off there, right? It's pandemic. Uh, we're going to make it look even worse just to get rid of the financing, right? Uh, we're going to change the projections, make them negative. And by the way, those projections end up being, you know, totally inaccurate. The business rebounded, you know, as everything did uh, stay at home. Uh, so, well, and that's uh, what, yeah. I mean, and that's where, you know, assuming I suspect as sort of swift a shift as Musk had over this, I think it, yeah, it seems pretty clear it's buyer's remorse and that if he's forced to buy, he'll, he'll probably turn the page and four months from now when he's the owner of Twitter, all the Musk fanboys will think that Twitter's the greatest thing again. And it'll just come full circle and this sort of strange this strange adventure will end and there will be more strange adventures to follow. I think that's where we are, but we still, yeah, I mean, this I think, one's not over we, yet. It's definitely not over yet. Despite my super high level of conviction, I still believe anybody who says that they're absolutely certain here is a fool. I do think <laughs> you could never be absolutely certain, but uh, I, I do think that there's just like a couple things that are pretty clear. And one is you do have this friendly judge. Uh, if, if you're looking to play this trade, you know, I'll sum it up. You, you've got the, the most friendly judge uh, who will be hearing the case. And her last precedent is the, the most well-established for buyers or more uh, in favor of a seller. Since it both enforces specific performance and it does it without debt financing being in place despite a merger agreement just like Twitter, which conditions specific performance on debt financing being in place. That's one. Two, people who think that the court is going to be engaged in like a discovery to figure out whether or not Twitter with respect to Bratz is a, is a fraud, that's not happening, okay? The court is going to try to figure out whether or not they have materially, materially false representation, right? And they're going to view that within the context of the fact that he was already on notice of it. Okay, that's it. That's all that matters there. You can do a ton of analysis and say, I came up with something that's different. And, and the court's job there is short of a smoking gun. All right. Everything you've come up with is something that you could have done and taken to Twitter before you bought it, okay? They did not put you, with respect to the bargain you negotiated, uh, in an uninformed, you know, slash essentially defrauded position on what you bargained for uh, by not like knocking you on the head initially and saying, hey, you know, like these numbers, these numbers are not what they seem to you. Right. So you, you just may want to check them and be comfortable with them first. So it's very clear in their language with respect to the thing he has focused on, i.e. the error rate of 5%, right? That a significant judgment could be higher 
and it's been disclosed, right? And they've clearly cooperated with him to give him what he needs, okay? Despite what he's done. And I mean, the only person who's clearly breached anything here is, is Elon, okay? So whether it's, uh, you know, disparaging them with the poop thing or uh, disclosing non-public information, i.e. that they do 100 a day, even though he said just 100, but just disclosing anything there publicly, right? Uh, that's pretty bad, you know? Like, the judge is not going to look kindly on the fact that, like, that's not in the reps and warranties, and you just put it on Twitter, <laughs> you know? And, like, if you don't close the transaction, like, they've suffered an injury <laughs> with respect to you putting that out there. because. Like they now need to explain to every advertiser, right? Like why this is not anything material. He's insinuating it is. And not only that, they may just have to clear it up in the first place and then explain to them. So he's like, that's the danger of him getting information, mischaracterizing it, not closing the deal, which they negotiated a right. So like the judge is going to really be like, they have the right not to give this to you. They gave it to you. Then you put it on Twitter in a, in a manner that's misleading. Okay. And now you're trying to not, now you're telling them that they haven't given you what you need. <laughs> you know, you are the poster child for buyer's remorse. So like the, the footing of this rests so strongly on those things. So like, they're not going to, this is not so like, cause there's been several people who are like, you know, what if it's a fraud? We'll only find out once the court gets into it. That's not what's happening here, okay? Like, it's a very detailed thing that they're disagreeing over. Or sorry, not even disagreeing over. They're helping him. They're accommodating him. It's a very detailed thing that he's trying to drive doubt into, which they've already disclosed is quite subjective, you know, uh, with respect to drawing an overall conclusion on what exactly is that actual number of physical single users, right? A number that probably nobody can get at with certainty because there's some people who have Twitter accounts they share. There's some people, you know, who are using bots for different reasons. Some of it's just plain out spam, right? Like the, you'll never get certainty. There's an error rate there that just is gonna exist. It's the nature of, of, of these social media companies. Mm. But you can definitely get certainty with respect to the fact that they're not all uh, you know, robots by doing your verifications and coming up with what it looks like you know, for, that, for that, 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 that sample you do daily, every quarter. And the history of that tells you something. So I think with respect to, you know, this is not gonna be discovery uh, and it's not gonna be some sort of uh, you know, uh, Delaware-driven investigation of social media metrics, right? Uh, we're not going in that direction. Uh, they do favor specific performance. And, you know, Elon's case is weak. Uh, Elon likely still wants to buy it. I don't, I'm not in this camp of the jokers. Uh, and I do think, despite the fact that, you know, specific performance is, is preferred by the court, the court is, is really going to want them to, to strike a settlement on their own, right? 
And you just have to interpret this from the motivation of parties. Cause you have people who are like, this Twitter board, like, you know, they don't want Elon to own Twitter. It's like the board is done when this is done. So like, they're just listening to counsel. They actually don't work in Elon's favor here, right? Because anything where they use significant judgment to get certainty of closing, right? Is something that they're exposed to. They already got what they thought was certainty of closing and they are following through with their obligations. So, I mean, if you think about it, like they almost, they're almost a collection of people who are just responding to the legal advice. And the legal advice is gonna be like, throw it to the court, like let them handle this. Because if it ends up with him not paying, they did nothing wrong, right? And people, people are not thinking about that. Like if he actually wants to challenge it, like he'll just have broken the rule of law and he'll be the first person to do it. You know, you can't blame them for that. They got exactly what they were supposed to get in the best interest of shareholders. Now, if the argument is that like there are reasons to believe that he couldn't afford to pay by then and that like, you know, there's some, there's some reason to, to give him a quick, uh, a quick discount. Well, you need to believe that like doing that is going to actually close the transaction faster. Because if you give him a quick discount and you're still going through the process of you know, him raising his equity and like selling what he needs to sell and getting the debt financing in place, like, yeah, you may have made it slightly easier to him for him, but you're still underwriting the same risks that the stock drops significantly or whatever happens, right? So unless it's like, hey, give me 10% off and you know, I'll transfer this tomorrow. Okay. And I don't, I'm not going to worry about anything else from here on out. You know, that's consideration that he would have given, which would be worth something. And it would probably be worth a discount of, you know, three to 10%. But short of, short of him doing that, like picking up the phone and, you know, his lawyers being like, look, we're Grenada. We're going to lose so badly, <laughs> you know? Short of him doing that, you're not gonna you're not gonna end up with uh, them doing anything. Like they don't, they're not picking up the phone. There's no reason for them to approach. Like the judge is going to have to be like, "Hey, you guys go sit and have a meeting," because I'm highly looking in this direction. So she's not gonna say, "I don't want to go in this direction because uh, you're waiting to tweet that you're gonna ignore me," right? She's gonna say. This is not looking good. Go talk. It's preferable for all of you because he's going to end up owning it. And, you know, it's going to look, you know, this way on the outside. It's better that it looks like you both, you both settled for, for, for the future of all mergers, you know, and for your intentions to run this company, right? You follow yeah. me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's essentially the way I see it. Like that's the reason to do a settlement. I mean, he's also crafted a lot of like, I mean, we've, everyone's forgotten about it for now, but I mean, he did wrap this in a mission, right? He wants to own the public, public square. He's not interested in the economics of Twitter. It's, this is not about making money, even though at the same time, he has a presentation to investors about how he'll get it to 30 billion in revenue. Right. Uh, and a billion users, 
But I mean, like this is kind of the the two two sided coin that is Elon. It's like I'm actually going to generate a lot of money, but I don't care about money. Uh, and like I'm doing this because we need to be an interplanetary species, or because free speech needs to be protected, you know. And presently, it's not it's not being managed well, even though like everybody from the content moderation world, and you know it better than anyone, you've been in the space, will tell you that like abuse is a major problem, okay? <laughs> and he doesn't seem to have any any way of addressing that uh, or making it better. So like what he's tossed out there as far as protecting, you know, seems decidedly vague, you know? Uh, he, he seems to be implying that he's just gonna remove uh, a left-leaning left, left -leaning bias and that's about it for account suspensions. That's the but I would imagine that, that like, box, I think, yeah. yeah, I think he cares about this being maintained. Now you could come back and say, you know what? Nobody gives a shit uh, that follows Elon. They're just like loyal followers. They will not think any less of him because of this complaint. There's plenty of people who just look at this and say, Twitter's full of shit. Like they're clearly lying to him. It's the only reason he would request this. He doesn't care about the money, right? There's no buyers or more. So you guys are absurd, right? Like, you know, something happened to change his view in two and a half weeks, and we're gonna find out. Like this is, he's he's playing his cards close, right? Like, and, and if that's the case, then like he doesn't care about the image. He is in his own echo chamber, you know. His followers are already doing 180 degrees, you know, whether it's Sachs or 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 whoever being like hey you know they go from you know if the twitter board rejects this they should be sued for violating the fiduciary obligation to shareholders to let's just walk away from this transaction <laughs> that's that's what's in the best interest of all parties it's like leave leave uh you know 20 billion dollars on the table that you negotiated right before uh the market crashed <laughs> You know, let it be, let it be. It wasn't meant to be, you know? If it was meant to be, the markets would have held up and everybody would have been happy. We can't have a situation here where, uh, you know, Elon's essentially been pickpocketed, you know, by the, by the sell-off. Let's not burden him with this, you know? Which is just really means it's just all about money, in which case, like, if it was any one of their companies, uh, they would be going... You know, like to the last drop, you know, of blood, right, in court. Because their, their case is so strong. And they would just be like contract law and, you know, 50 years of Delaware court sits on my side. Like, why would, why would I blink? He's going to blink. And it will be up to me to decide whether or not a, a slight discount is in the interest of making everybody happy moving forward right that's it like that's where you where you say i'll give you four five six seven percent otherwise you're just going to be like man fuck you i'm selling i already like i already agreed to you like you solicited me and you barnstormed me you gave me a week you know you gave me everything that i wanted to sell it i sold it now you're telling me you changed your mind because uh the market changed that's your problem not mine yeah it, it could be my problem if the market changing has made it so unlikely for you to afford it that I need to reconsider, 
but you happen to be the world's richest man on paper. So I'm not going to budge unless you give me a very good reason to. All right, I think that's yeah, enough. That's, I think, a good place to leave it. So I don't know that there should be any huge developments until the trial, but uh, if there are, I'm sure we'll be on it. Good stuff, Hakram. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.